If you have your Bibles tonight, if you would find uh, Nehemiah chapter 3. It's been a while since we've been together. Had a revival and prayer meeting and some work nights. And, um, and so it's good to be back with you. I always love the opportunity just to share God's Word. Uh, I always hate the opportunity, though, that you might ask a question that I might not know. But I have long given up knowing that I do not have all of the answers. Tonight we begin the section on rebuilding the wall. But tonight I want to talk to you not just about what Nehemiah did, but how do you rebuild the things in your life that have been torn down? So sometimes that is a marriage. A marriage does not look like what we thought it was going to. Uh, when we walked down the aisle and everything was wonderful and perfect and, and just, you know, it was nothing could be better. And then some days you wake up and think, how did... How did the walls get tore down? Where are we at today? Sometimes it's with our children. We, we have children and we take them home from the hospital and they're this wonderful, precious gift that is just everything we ever hoped for. And then they get to be about 20 sometimes or 14 or sometimes younger than that. And we think, man, what, is, what has happened? Today I had the privilege of preaching a funeral for a husband and a wife that I had never met. Didn't know their family. They're not from here. They're actually from up around uh, Rockford and Joli, uh, jo, uh, Joliet. So I was thinking that maybe you might have some family up that direction. Used to, it would have been the Wheelers. Uh, Paul and Dorothy Wheeler. It would have been early 90s. Moved from down here, up there. Well, your parents might have known them when they moved up there. But anyway, and they uh, had three children today. And... Uh, uh, I've been at a lot of funerals where children did not speak very highly of their parents. Uh, I, I recently had one where I did not know the family. I got up and spoke at the funeral. It was very short. It was a graveside. And the daughter began to get up and talk about all of her dad's uh, inappropriate lifestyle choices and decisions that he had made. And, and as I stood behind the funeral director, I looked at him and said, and he goes, and uh, she just kept right on talking. And after she sat down, he's like, do you want to close in prayer? And I'm like, nope. I do not want any part of what just happened. And uh, snuck right out and left. It was the most uncomfortable thing I've ever been at. But this family all shared stories about their mom and dad and, and how much they meant to them and, and how they impacted their life. And I thought, you know, that's the goal, right, uh, is to leave a legacy that endures. But what happens if that legacy has been tore down? If there's a child who has run from God, there's a, a child who's gotten mixed up in things they shouldn't, how do we rebuild that? Same way with the church. Uh, how, how do we continue to build when the church is constantly under attack? And you say, Jake, I don't understand what you mean by the church is constantly under attack. Well, it's under attack from a lot of different ways. The first way is just complacency. That is the number one threat the church faces is complacency from its people, right? Because, hey, sermon's not too bad, music's not too bad, Sunday school's not too bad, you know, we've got some nursery workers, we've got some children's programs, we've got enough money. You know, it just happens, right? We, you know, it just, it just magically falls out of the sky that way. And so most people don't see the need to serve and to sacrifice. And I know I'm not talking to you all because you're here on a Wednesday night. So if you don't care, take this and share it with someone that's not, all right? But people just think that, well, this 
you know, I'm just so glad that, that, that somebody sent me a card when I lost a loved one. Or I'm just so glad that someone came and visited me when I was sick. Or I, I'm so thankful someone was friendly to me when I got here. And, and those things don't just happen, right? It is, it is somebody is making a decision. And so how do we stand up to complacency? The second thing I would say is just the fact that Satan is at work. Satan is at work in every meeting. Every time that someone is talking, sharing, even tonight in Vacation Bible School training up there tonight, everybody's happy, everybody's excited, everybody's thinking this is going to be awesome. But I can promise you there's someone up there in the mindset of, I wouldn't do it this way if I was in charge. Or you know what, that sounds like a pretty good idea, but I think I would do it like this. And that is not dangerous at all until someone shares that out loud and it gets back to whoever made that decision. And so even in the simplest of moments, the foundation and the walls that we have built can be tore down. And tonight I don't want to talk to you about tearing them down, but I want to talk to you about rebuilding what has already been tore down. Because that's where the nation of Israel was. The city of Jerusalem had been torn down. They had started the rebuild process. And I'm not going to read all of these verses in chapter 3 because who built which gate and, and all of those things is important, but you can read those on your own time. But there are two things that I want to show you from this text and how you can know how to rebuild. In this text, when Nehemiah is assigning people to rebuild different sections, he doesn't do it by accident. He doesn't just walk in and say, okay, Kevin Clark, he looks like a nice, friendly... He looks like he would be the best nursery worker right off the bat. Right? I'm not saying he wouldn't be a great nursery worker, but that's probably not a good way to pick. I think he would be a great nursery worker. Just, just right off. Hey, I think we're getting ready to possibly build a new building. I, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think Catherine should help us hang drywall. Well, no, Catherine don't need to hang drywall. She needs to just enjoy and, and to and to rest and to, and to do those things. But just randomly picking people. Right? Boy, I tell you what, I think Mark looks like he'd be the perfect nursery director. I, that'd be a great job for him. I can just see it on his face. He wants to volunteer and go in there. But, and sometimes we think that's how church works. If somebody would just raise their hand, I have a slot to fill. And sometimes that is necessary. But that is not what Nehemiah does here. Nehemiah begins to assign people the part of the gates that will mean something to them. And so I want to show you here, starting in verse 1, Then Elishab, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priest, and built the sheep gate, then consecrated it and hung its doors. Well, if you know anything about the sheep gate, that was on the northern part of the wall. The northern part of the wall was the part that was closest to the temple. And so the priest is going to be most likely focused on what part of worship? The priest. They didn't put him at the uh, fish gate. They didn't put him at the muster gate. They didn't put him at the horse gate. They didn't put him on the very south side of the city as far as you could get away from the temple. They put him as close to what mattered to him to work. And if you go through and look at the list of all these cities, some of them we don't know for sure, some of the gates we don't know for sure, 
But if you look at every city that these people work from, if you were to take their city and look toward Jerusalem, you couldn't see it most likely from a lot of these towns, but guess what part of the wall they would be looking at when they looked and thought about Jerusalem? The part they were rebuilding. So Nehemiah assigned them in a place where, hey, we're going to Jerusalem from our town. And as we approach Jerusalem, we're going to be approaching the gate that we built, that we worked upon. And I think this is not an accident. Because if you have ever helped in church, right, if you've ever helped build something, uh, a funny story I always like to tell about freedom uh, when I was going there, we hung the basement drywall. And most of you just know Bob Lee. And Bob said, Jake, I want you to screw these in when I hang the drywall. And I said, not a problem. I don't know what I'm doing. But man, everybody can use a screw gun, put in drywall screws. Edie was even on. You know, it even had the, 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 it's all tied together. You could just boom, boom, boom. So we get done with that whole room. All right, the whole room. And Bob begins to look at all those screws. And he says, uh, Jake, that wall was styrofoam. And I said, yep, not a problem. I knew that. I, even I knew that. He said, uh, when you put drywall in styrofoam, uh, drywall screws don't stick to styrofoam. I said, oh, I guess that makes sense. You know, it's kind of like a cooler. You wouldn't put screws in a styrofoam cooler. He said, there's little plastic strips inside of those styrofoam concrete blocks that you have to screw those into. I said, oh, didn't know that. Uh, he said, how many of them screws do you think you put in those little strips of plastic? I said, probably not a one. Not a one at all. And so every time I have ever went back there, I have went to that room to think and see if all the drywall has fallen and collapsed on top of someone. <laughs> and it hasn't yet. But I think of that every time. I think of being out here as we built the gymnasium. And I can think about... Uh, I remember when so-and-so built the stairs, and I can remember when we, we worked on the gravel. I can remember when we did this. Uh, uh, why? Because what you work on becomes something that you claim ownership of, right? It's like a, a teacher that teaches in the same room for years and years and years and then retires. The students who go by that room later remember that as Mr. So-and-so's room or Mrs. So-and-so's room. Why? Because there is an ownership in where we work. And Nehemiah does this specifically. And tonight I want you to know that if you're going to rebuild what has been tore down, you have to have stake in the game. I don't mean stake like you would cut and eat and enjoy, but you have to have something in it that costs something. And so tonight, maybe that's why I gave you that piece of paper tonight, and you don't have to fill it out. Uh, you don't have to do anything with it. You can wad it up and throw it at your neighbor if you want to. But tonight, I want you to write down something that you feel God has made you passionate about and that you're not getting to do. Maybe you're passionate about singing, but yet you don't feel like you've ever been given the opportunity to sing. Maybe you feel that God has given you a gift of of being very welcoming and inviting, but yet you've never been given the opportunity to be a door greeter. 
And you say, Jake, what are you going to do with these? I'm not going to ask you to put your name on them, so I'm not going to run around and say, oh, Tyler really wants to work in the front door. He's just such a friendly, nice guy. That's the perfect spot for him. I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to do that to him. But I really want you to begin thinking in your own life, what is something that God has given me specifically, a gift or a talent to use, something that I could claim ownership of, not as a prideful, but that I could use for God's glory. How, how could I be used intentionally, not just sporadically? I mean, God made you and created you and gave you what He wanted you to have. And then sometimes we're like, well, I don't have that gift. Yeah, you do. Everybody else sees it. Everybody else knows it. Well, I'm not going to use it. Well, that would be like in verse 4. When Nehemiah said, Also the sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its door with its bolts and bars. If they'd have said, No, I don't want to do the fish gate. No one's going to see the fish gate. It's just going to be brought fish in from the Jordan River. I mean, that's not very spiritual. It's just going to bring in fish. I want to work on something more important. Maybe they say, Well, I don't want to work on the fish gate because the fish gate stinks. Because people's already bringing fish in that way. Right? Just, just imagine if one part of these people said, well, I don't think I like the task that's assigned to me. I, I don't think I like that section of the wall. You see, some of these sections of the wall would have been on very steep areas. They would have been built right next to places where walls had crumbled, houses had crumbled. And so it wasn't like we just strolled out into the parking lot and said, you know what, I think we'll paint parking blocks today. No, this was physical, hard work. But yet they knew that there was a purpose. And so tonight I really want you to think about that as I talk or you pray about it. And just write down, man, God has gifted me in something. And I really feel that I have that gift and I'm just not using it. Maybe that's our fault as a church. I don't know if you know this or not, but we are seeing anywhere between two to five new families every single week. Uh, and we have had that going on now for a long time. Uh, and it's so, so overwhelming that it used to be, if you came and visited 10 Mile, I would come knock on your door and be like, surprise, I uh, would love to tell you more about the church, would love to invite you. Uh, and that doesn't happen anymore. Well, one, because people never like those visits, all right? Because you'd be surprised how many times on someone's porch they'd say, don't be yelling that, the pastor's at the door, right? So that was part of it, because I don't like calling, because I was like showing up randomly at people's houses. Uh, and two, it's just, it's, it's just something that has, 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 I've gotten lazy over the years and just not been able to keep up. And so how many people do you think sit on the pews here at our church that have gifts and talents and have their specific area where God wants them to build, but yet they're not building? Do you think there's anybody like that? Okay, so if you were in the second service Sunday, I was out in the hallway, and I'm listening to the music, as I do, and I'm thinking, man, there is someone playing the guitar that is way off key. There are notes that I don't think are supposed to be in there. And I'd listen a little while, and I hear this guitar playing, I'm going, man, who is up there messing the guitar up? Well, after church, I asked somebody, I said, no, no, no. 
that was someone that was playing that's got serious skill, that's adding stuff to the music that's not even in the music, but it's supposed to be there. And I went, oh, interesting. And then once I went back and listened to it, and I was like, oh, that makes sense. But Ethan has a gift. Uh, that's the now coolest cowboy on the stage, now that Monty's you know, even cooler than Monty. Uh, and he has this gift to, to be used, and he's finally using it here. And so I just wonder how many other people have those gifts that God has given them to use specifically in the whole that he has created. Thoughts, disagreements, questions. Uh, some of you are probably thinking, well, I already served so many stinking places now, I don't want any more, you know. Thoughts. How does this apply to your home? How does this apply to your life? Well, one, you have to recognize in your personal life that God has a purpose and a plan for you. That if you're married, God has a purpose and a plan for that. If you're a grandparent, God has a purpose and a plan for that. If you're an aunt, an uncle, a niece, a friend, a child, uh, you have parents, then you have a slot to fill. And it's not just a slot to fill by accident. It is a slot to fill that God has created you for. And so sometimes I will hear people say, well, I don't want to do that. It's not my responsibility. I, it should be my, my other family member's responsibility, or it should be, it should be someone else that does that. And, and sometimes we have to just recognize that I am here for this season to do this task. And if I don't do it, who is going to fill the slot? Who is going to be the one standing in the, the gap? And so I see it all the time from husbands and wives, right? Well, you know, I would, I would try to lead my family, but my wife won't listen. Well, just quit then and leave the gap open. Or maybe a wife will say, well, I want, I want to be a godly family, but my husband won't leave, so, lead, so I'll just give up. So what you're saying is you're not going to stand in the gap. You see... Tonight I said that all because most of us think that everybody that Nehemiah reached out to wanted to help build the wall, but they didn't. Look in verse 5. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. So even if someone else won't build with you, keep building. Even if someone else won't be the person that God wants them to be, keep being who God wants you to be. If the person you're married to will not do what God has asked them to do, you be the one that keeps building. The New Testament teaches this principle. And it's probably not what you think about when you think about this, but the Bible tells us that if a believing wife has an unbelieving husband who will stay in a marriage with them, that that unbelieving wife, or that, excuse me, believing wife is supposed to do what? Stay. And what does the Bible say can be the result of that? That the unbelieving husband and the children can be influenced for Christ because of that believing wife. And so what if that believing wife says, well, I don't want to be the believing wife. It's not easy. It's not 
It's not pleasant. It's not, it's not fun. I'm, I, I just am not going to build the gate where I'm at. Then nothing gets accomplished. And so maybe tonight you're saying, well, Jake, I've raised my kids and they want nothing to do with God. They don't want nothing to do with the church. Uh, but what about my grandkids? Do all you can for them. Pray for them. Invite them to vacation Bible school. Offer to pick them up for church. Because why? Just because they don't want to build the gate doesn't mean you shouldn't build the gate. Because look what it says here in verse 5. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. It doesn't say they opposed the work of the Lord, but it says they wouldn't support it. And many people won't be anti-God, they just want nothing to do with God. Right? I don't care if you take my kids to church on the bus, it gives me an extra two hours to sleep in on Sunday morning. We're getting ready here in a couple Sundays to go door to door after church. And I know nobody wants to go door to door. I don't want to go door to door, all right? But I can tell you when we went door to door a few years ago, we literally had people said, so you will come pick my kids up, feed them breakfast, keep them for a few hours, and bring them home. Absolutely. So you'll take my kids, <laughs> feed them breakfast, and bring them home a couple hours later. Absolutely. Sign them up. Why? Because mom and dad didn't even usually dress them. It was usually an older sibling. And they were out of their hair for three hours. I, come, we, I dropped one kid off and they couldn't get in the front door, couldn't get in the front door. So I went up to the front door. You know me, I was calm and peaceful and just a wonderful human being. And I'm banging on the door, you know, because you can hear them inside. Well, the dad was playing his video game and had his headphones on and had the front door locked. and He could have cared less when his kids come home. And I thought, I tell you what, I'd like to use you, buddy, but I won't. Because I'm way too good looking to go to prison. And, uh, but, uh, but that is the mindset of most people. And so we have to be willing to fill the gap even when someone else won't. Do you see that attitude in churches and homes and people? I mean, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Absolutely. But I bet you're thankful that your wife was filling that gap. Oh yeah. Amen. Amen. Everybody else thanks God for that knows you guys too. No, I'm just Amen to that. Amen. Amen. But how many testimonies is that, right? And I hear it from people all the time. Well, my wife got the kids up and took them to church. I worked the weekends and I, you know, I was working a second job trying to make ends meet. And if it wouldn't have been for them, who'd have took them to church, right? Who'd have been that godly influence? And so tonight I really just want to challenge you to find out where does God have me and what does God given me an ability to do and what am I needing to be doing to accomplish something? It can be at home. It can be at church. It can be at work. Uh, you know, I know, uh, you know Tyler works at General Tire. I'm sure there is a, a lack of lost people at Continental, isn't there? Everybody's saved, right? Yeah. yeah. Hopefully you understand the facetiousness in our voice there, right? So people say, well, why does God have me work in such a terrible place? I believe God wants people to witness to people in every area. And so while we 
as people can be very discouraged with our coworkers, right? Man, they talk foul, they, 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 they act foul, they just, man, they're just wicked. And it can be very frustrating, I, I know. And I pastor, okay? <laughs> I have that same feeling, and they usually call, call themselves saved people. <laughs> but it's a gap that we are called to fill, that someone has to share the gospel with them. Someone has to live out their faith in front of them. Someone has to be that, that witness. I'm sure all of the auto body shops that you go into, they're all just saved people and godly people. And, you know, mechanics and car people just really seem like a churchy group, don't they? No. They're not no, no. Or I'm sure while you were coaching at Ren Lake, all those girls that God sent over there on the softball team, they were all saved kids and living for... The, no. Why? But God has us in places to fill a gap. You say, well, Jake, in your case, your wife stays home. She don't have to deal with people like that. I have three children that need to be saved. Now, I don't believe they're old enough to be saved, but someone needs to be there teaching them the things of God. And so that is the gate that she is building. That is the slot that she is filling. I am teaching the fourth grade class during vacation Bible school. And do you think that I woke up one day and said, man, I just have a passion for fourth grade kids in vacation Bible school? No, I didn't, by the way. But as I began to pray, I thought, man, there are some fourth graders that can really use a godly influence. And I'm not always a godly influence, but for a couple hours a day, one week of the year, I think I can do it, all right? Fourth grade boys are starting to really change. They're starting to really think different. And they're, you know, it's just a, and I thought, I think I could fill that slot. I really think I could. Now, if you think you could fill it better than me, I will step aside. All right. But I just really prayed about it and felt, man, this is, I could do this. I, I want to do this. I think God wants me to do this. And so, Vacation Bible School Week, if you want to come see how I do with kids, just come on and join me. We'll, We'll tackle it together. Hopefully not tackle a child because that never, never goes over well. But just think about that tonight. Not only what God has gifted you with, but in what areas do you see that you're carrying the slack? That you really are being the one to fill the shoes of someone maybe that should be doing it other than you. And this is why. Because I want you to begin to pray for that person. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your coworker. Uh, pray for the the pray for that person that needs to fill that gap for your son or daughter uh, to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So, anything else before we jump to chapter four? All right. So we've looked at how we all have a wall to build. We all have uh, people that are not going to do what God has asked them to do. But chapter 4, we begin to see real opposition. Because complacency in church is one thing. Complacency in people's lives is one thing. But when it turns into downright opposition, that's when it really gets hard. Because most of us have one of two options when we face opposition. We fight or we flight. Right? We can either stand and fight... And usually we don't fight with the weapons that God has given us, right? We fight with the flesh, don't we? Someone s spreads a rumor about me. My first thought is always, man, I'm just going to pray for them. 
I'm just so thankful for them. I know they just had a weak moment. I, I, I know that's not how they are all the time. That has never, in my mind, came up first. Not one time, ever. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's always, who do they think they are? Right? Do they not know what we've done for them? What in the world is wrong with them? You know? Do you not realize the damage they're going to... I think I'll just tell them what I really think of them. And God has to tell me, Jake, just shut up. That is not what God wants for me. And so when you fight, you are to fight with what? Not weapons made of hands, but that we're in a spiritual battle. We have, and you can read uh, in the New Testament, the weapons of that warfare. And Clayton Henderson actually came running through church tonight, and he had on the breastplate, he had the sword, and he had the shield. And I said, what are you doing, Clayton? He said, I'm your bodyguard. I said, that's great. And the next thing I did was I went up to his sister Chloe and very lightly went, judo chop. I said, now defend me, Clayton. And as I turned to walk down the hallway, she judo chopped me back. Not as nicely as I did her, by the way. And I said, Clayton, where were you? You were supposed to be my defender. And he goes, yeah, but you started it. <laughs> and I went, well, that's not a good enough excuse. You said you would defend me. And tonight I want you to know that we can do just as much damage fighting opposition if we fight with the weapons that are not of the Spirit as we can do if we run from a fight that we should stand for. That's very important tonight. Don't miss that. You can do more damage if you stand and fight with the weapons that God has not given you than if you jump ship and flee. And so let's just jump right in here in chapter 4. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before the brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, whatever they build, it even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So opposition comes first in the form of mockery. Opposition comes first in the form of mockery. Sometimes it sounds like this. I was recently talking to a young lady whose husband is not a Christian. And she said, Jake, I've begged him to come to church. I've nagged him to come to church. I've done everything I possibly know to do to get him to come. And I said, all you can do is pray. All you can do is live your faith at home and let God produce the results. She goes, but what happens when he mocks me when I come to church? Come anyway. She goes, but I just get angry and I get bitter and I get upset. And I said, how does that work out for you when you respond? Well, not good. Why? Because even though mockery comes, we can't let that define our response. We cannot let that change who we are. But not only did they mock them, they made fun of what their workmanship was. 
So what they were really saying is, well, you're not very good wall builders anywhere. We're not worried. Well, you can go to church all you want and sing those songs and listen to that guy get up there and yell and shout and sweat all day. It ain't going to do no good. You see, friends, mockery comes first and then making fun of what can be done comes second. So tonight I really want you to think about that in your own life, whether it's personally, what you're facing at home, what you're facing at work, what you face at church, that opposition is going to come. And it will usually start with mockery and then a doubt that it will do any good. I had a church member tell me one time, uh, I would go door to door, but no one would respond. Nobody, no, nobody's going to come to church if you go invite them. I said, that's okay. I'm not going to invite them to church. I'm going to share the gospel with them. Because inviting them to church is great, and we will do that. But just getting them here is not enough. It's part of it. But what people need to hear is what? The gospel. They need to hear the word of God because it promises that it will never, what? Return void. And so I was much younger then, okay? And I was not as refined and dignified as I am now as a pastor. And my response was, well, who do you think you are calling God a liar? And you can imagine how that went over. That person was spiritual and mature, and they said, what do you mean I'm calling God a liar? I said, well, the Bible says go. Go forth. And so we're going forth. And what you're saying is, I'm going to stay right here. I said, so God said go, and you said stay. You're disobedient, and you're a liar. That was not what I should have said, because it did not do any good. Now, to this day, that person and I are still friends. But I can promise you, when that sign-up sheet goes up in the front lobby about who's going to go door-to-door, I'm guaranteed their name's going to be right on top, isn't it? No. Why? Because in my moment of being mocked, because it was my idea to go out that time, and when someone said it won't do any good to go anyway, I thought... Well, you're after me. But I want to show you the right way to respond tonight. And that's where we'll close. Nehemiah prays. (laughs) And looking back, I thought, boy, I should have just prayed before I talked. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Nehemiah just goes to God and says, God, you're going to have to take care of it. I'm asking you to turn their reproach back on themselves. Lord, I'm asking for you to give them over to what they want to happen to us. Do not cover their iniquity. He says... Don't overlook their sin. God, let them be dealt with because of what they're doing. Because look what he says there in the last part of that verse. And don't miss this. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. 
What did Jesus tell the disciples when people would reject the message? Not that they had rejected them, but that they had rejected who? Him. But how many of you like rejection? Right? Like to be rejected at home, like to be rejected at work, like to be rejected. That's something we all look forward to, right? I want to apply for this job just so I didn't get it. That's exactly what you were thinking here, weren't you, Kevin, recently? I, I just really hope they'll call and say, you could stay for the city, right? Overqualified, absolutely. <laughs> right? And that's exactly what I was thinking when I tried to get Tony's number when we started dating. Boy, I hope she doesn't give it to me. I just really want to publicly humiliate myself in front of all these people. No, none of us likes rejection. But what Nehemiah recognized was that this battle was not against him. This battle was against the Lord. And I really want you to hear that tonight because when it's in your own home, it sure don't feel like a battle against the Lord. It feels like a battle between two people. But it's not. If you are loving Jesus and trying to be the person that God wants you to be, the opposition that you face is not directed towards you. It is directed toward the one that you stand for. It's the same thing when Jesus told him that. You and I are not what's offensive. The Bible says the gospel is offensive. Right? It's glorious for us who believe, right? But for those who don't believe, it is the stumbling block. And so tonight, when you face opposition at home, when you face opposition at work, when you face opposition at church, don't take it personal. And I can tell you, I am the world's worst at that. I'm, I'm, it's just the way I am. I can tell you every time someone's been upset since I've been here, I can tell you every family that's left here, I can remember every time someone didn't like something we've done. I remember every single bit of it. And do you know who I give the blame to? Myself. Well, if I just said it differently. Or if I would have explained it differently. Or man, if we'd have just waited a little bit longer. Or if we'd have had 17 more committee meetings. Or right, if we'd have done this. Or we would have done that. And, and not to say that we're perfect because I am a sinner. But that's how I play it. I, 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 I. And what God says is, as long as you are doing what He has told you to do. Now, don't get, don't get drunk and get a DUI and say, well, I, I'm just facing Satan and all the opposite. No, you, know, you did that to yourself, dum-dum. All right? That was all you. But if you are doing what God has asked you to do, and opposition comes, that opposition is directed toward the Lord and you need to let him handle it because I really want to I just, we can't leave without verse 6 I'm sorry I know I said we'd stop there so we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work so not only did they give the battle to God they kept doing what they were supposed to do keep praying for those people in your life that don't know Jesus. Keep sharing the gospel with those people you work with, even if they hate it. Keep being the spouse God told you to be, even if your significant other isn't. Quit be, don't quit being the faithful child just because your siblings 
have given up their duties. Because did you see what it says there in the end of verse 6? For the people had a mind to work. They were committed that they weren't going to just take this gift that God gave them. They were going to have to work for it. What, what is the one sign that you see at every single business you pull up to? Help wanted. And if you have watched the news, what is the one thing employers can't find? Workers. Because people don't want to work. Well, the boss is bad. The hours are bad. The pay is not good. The co-workers are... All of those excuses. But what these men had decided, and women, was that we're going to work. And we're going to work for the Lord. We're going to serve Him. We're going to sacrifice. We're going to do what is necessary because we believe and trust that God will do His part. I, uh, I've led a lot of people to the Lord on their deathbed. And I've had some kids say, if you knew my dad, you knew that that's not valid. There's no way God would save him on his deathbed after he treated my mom or after she ran out on us. Jake, you just don't know the pain and the stuff that has been done to us. There's no way that God would forgive them and let them into heaven. And what I always tell them is, if they were born again, God absolutely did. Because why? That's who God is. And His Word says, if we will confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive them. I might not want God to forgive somebody. I've been in a place in my life a time or two where I thought, God, if you just go ahead and smite them, I'd be okay with that. And it's usually when I watch the television is when it usually happens. But then I remember that the Bible says that God is long-suffering not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so I have to get to a place where I'm going to keep working for God even though I don't see results. How many of you were here on Easter? Anybody here on Easter? If you were here on Easter, you probably had a hard time finding a seat in either service. And everybody, all they've been saying is, Jake, oh, I can't believe it. It was so wonderful. It was so... And it was. But can I tell you what was the most discouraging thing to me about Easter? Do you know how many people use the altar in the second service? With 400 and almost, almost 400 people in the sanctuary. Guess how many? Zero. And you say, Jake, you don't preach for results. You're absolutely wrong and right. I don't preach and take my success off of the results, but I always want to see more people saved. And so I could have left here Sunday and thought, well, boy, that was a big crowd. That was a successful day. Or I could have left and said, not one person used the altar and the whole sermon. Not one person. That was just a total defeat. But what I had to do is sit in my office that afternoon after I ate too much for Easter dinner and say, God, did I do what you told me to do? Did I preach what you told me to preach? Did I repent before I preached? And I had to answer yes. And I have to realize 
That's all God has asked me to do. So, thoughts, questions, disagreements, uh, anything. Knocked it out of the park tonight, didn't I? I just told you about no one responding and how discouraging that was. Thanks a lot for helping a guy out. <laughs> you don't have to come up here to the altar tonight. You could have just said, oh, I struggle with that. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. But really, really, anything at all. All right. How can we pray for you tonight, celebrate with you uh, tonight?